0: Just ask if anybody needs one. That's uh, all. Uh, yeah. Okay, and so put them up in the front, please. Yes.
1: morning! Happy Easter! Let's go over a couple of announcements. Uh, offering envelopes in the box up at the front of the, of the church. Our contact number is still Andrea. Uh, days of praise and acts of facts we have in the foyer on the tables. Uh, today is Easter. Uh, we had our early morning service uh, with Jared uh, bringing the message. And This is a uh, Going to be about the, the resurrection of Christ, what pastors bringing forth today. And there will be a luncheon afterwards. I see we have some visitors. Please stay and enjoy the goodies. We've got a couple of big juicy hams, large salad, pie, and uh, a bunch of other accoutrements and dressings. So, ultimately, a diabetic nightmare, but. <laughs> But today, today is a celebration. It is a celebration of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And for that, let's celebrate. Mary in this. Have hope. Do we have any uh, special announcements or anything? Uh, Dale, do you have any, any uh, word on Della, how she's doing, having talked to him? Okay. Uh, hopefully we'll be in touch with her. Any special announcements or uh, concerns or prayer requests that we need to address? Okay, being none, our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from the book of John, chapter 11, verses 21 through 44, and that would be page 1669 in your pew Bible. you please stand with us as we begin our service and opening prayer. Brother George McLeod, would you lead us, please?
2: Our God and our Father, we thank you so much that we're able to gather here on an Easter Sunday in remembrance of your dear son and his death, burial, and resurrection, for us to be able to have life
1: Please remain standing.
0: Will you take your red hymnal, Trinity, and turn to number 276? 276, 276 in the red. <coughs> That's the theme of our life. I'm very sorry. You need to give us one more minute
3: so they can tune. Got some older and newer instruments so they don't keep tuning. Give us a minute. (laughs) 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 One minute.
1: Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 3 through 20, and that'll be page 1789 in your pew bar.
0: For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope, in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. But if in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Take your brown handle this time and turn the number 206, 206 in the brown.
4: Our text this morning is First Corinthians fifteen, verses one and following. What a beautiful morning it is, too, that God has given us for this Easter Sunday. Sunny and bright. And we think about life in general as it's coming up through the ground springtime. And also to think of the resurrection of our Lord. The life that he promises uh, by his grace. This morning I want to talk to you about the gospel of the good news of resurrection. And I believe it is sometimes missed by believers just how important the resurrection of Christ is to the Christian hope of eternal life. This is Holy Week, and everywhere across our country and throughout the world, emphasis has been given to the death of Christ on the cross for sinners. In Ontario, where I preached on a Good Friday message one time, part of the Sovereign Grace Churches up there. The entire country in Ontario, Canada, but the entire country of Canada shuts down all commercial enterprises to celebrate Good Friday by law. By law, Walmart, Kmart, all the grocery stores, all the manufacturers, all other enterprises are closed. The only stores allowed to be open are the gas stations and the restaurants. Feed your car, feed your body. (coughs) They allow for that. And all of this is to remember and to celebrate the crucifixion of Jesus, and thus the atonement of his personal sacrifice. But isn't it also true that we in our thinking and discussion reflect more on the cross of Jesus than on the open tomb? I, th- I think that's pretty much true. It's not that the cross is central in the most people's thinking when contemplating salvation from sin we hear it all the time we hear Jesus died to save his people from the consequences of their sin so emphasis on death but we seldom hear the equally true statement Jesus was raised to life for our salvation maybe this emphasis has to do with the truth that Jesus himself inaugurated an ordinance, the Lord's Supper, we call it, specifically designed to make us reflect upon his death. Although resurrection is implied in that ordinance, let me read it for you. Paul tells us, whenever you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until... He comes. Well, he can't come if he's dead. It implies resurrection. He has to be alive to come. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 26. Point being, then, not to create another lopsided emphasis by shifting our thoughts to resurrection, but to see that the gospel is not good news without resurrection. Let me say it again. The gospel, which the word gospel means the good news. But it's not good news without resurrection. You see, the gospel is about life. so, So much for just talking about Jesus' death. It's a gospel about an open tomb, as well as about a rugged cross. It is a gospel of anticipation and joy, as well as a gospel of sorrow and retrospect. It's a gospel for the present and also for the future, as well as a gospel of the past. So it's with these things in mind that I direct your thoughts to the opening remarks of Paul's famous treatise on the resurrection. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. And as we come to our study, let's ask for the Lord's enablement. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Paul's writing of these things. That you inspired him to reflect upon the resurrection. Not just to let it pass by, but to really think about it and to delve into its theology and to what it means. And what it would mean if there were no resurrection. So I pray that you will help us this morning. Thank you for each one of us here today. We ask that you will bless us in a special way. By your Spirit, as your Word of God, the sword of the Spirit convicts us and prods us and makes us think, all of this being good, to the praise and glory of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We want to look today at three important considerations concerning Jesus' resurrection. Number one, the place of resurrection in the gospel message. Number two, the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection. And number three, the importance of resurrection for our daily lives as believers. So the place of resurrection (coughs) is given for us in the first four verses of our text. Now, brothers, I want you to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word that I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I pass on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then he also appeared to the apostles. Last of all, he appeared to me as one abnormally born. In other words, I'm super privileged that he also appeared <clears throat> to me. The place of resurrection was part and parcel to the gospel which Paul preached. Verse 1 linked with verse 2 demonstrates the connection between the gospel Paul preached and the word of God on which the Corinthian believers took their stand. The gospel I preached to you, verse 1. The word I preached to you, verse 2. They're connected, you say. Well, what was this gospel or word from God? which the Corinthians heard, believed, and upon which they took their stand. Verse 3 and 4. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It's evident that the gospel concerns more than the cross of Christ. It's more than a message of redemption It's more than a story about atonement. The gospel incorporates these things, to be sure, but it also includes the glorious truth of victory over death and over the grave. It is the declared triumph of the open tomb. There's no suggestion here that resurrection is somehow inferior to the death and burial of Christ. No, it's right up there, along with all all of those things. Observe here from verse 2 that this gospel of resurrection was preached by Paul, believed on by the Corinthians, and it was the gospel in which people are saved, he says. The gospel which saves is the gospel of resurrection, as well as the gospel of crucifixion. This makes resurrection more than an afterthought, doesn't it? Rather, it makes resurrection central to salvation, not incidental. The resurrection, then, is part and parcel of the good news of the gospel. And I would go so far as to say that without the resurrection, the gospel loses its good news status. And that's essentially what Paul says in verse 17. Let me read it. If Christ has not been raised, your faith... Is futile. Oh, wow. You're still in your sins. Ooh. That's very serious, isn't it? Still in my sins? Still condemned by God? Still marked as a rebel and a God hater? Still defiant to my creator while believing that all is well with my soul when it isn't? That's horrendous. That's dreadful. And that's exactly what the scripture says. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10 verse 31. The God David affirms, You perceive my thoughts from afar. You're familiar with all my ways. And before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. O Lord. That's the God that we need to know. David knew him. We need to know him. Psalm 139, verse 3 and following. All the truths which comprise the gospel... Occurred according to the scripture, verse 3 and 4. And this is a little phrase with a huge meaning. Some have ignored it altogether and in doing so, they've glossed over the supreme authority for these teachings, namely that God himself and what he has declared. You say, well, I believe the Bible was written by men and contains the thoughts of men. Well, you're entitled to be ignorant and wrong if you so choose. But as we shall see shortly, one of the men to whom the risen Christ appeared was Peter, verse 5. And this Peter writes in his letter, Above all, you must understand, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, verse 21. I don't know how many times in witnessing to people about the great news, the good news of the gospel, they will look at me and say, Well, that's your interpretation. They say that all the time. And Peter is saying, no, it's not our interpretation. The Holy Spirit revealed these things in the scripture. Can you read English? Of course, the New Testament was written in Greek, translated into English. But his point is saying, read it for yourself. It's in the book. It's right there. And in the case of Peter himself, he admits about Jesus. Let me read it for you. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty for he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love, with Him I am well pleased. We ourselves, says Peter, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with Him, on the sacred mountain. Wow. Second Peter one verse sixteen and following. So they were eyewitnesses of God's Son in action, and they were ear witnesses of what the Son taught when he was here on earth. Let me ask this question: Are these not the most reliable sources of what happened in any search for truth. Not just biblical truth, but any source of searching for truth. Men will believe the writings of Aristotle, right? Of Plato, who simply wrote their philosophy of life. Why can they not believe the eyewitness? the ear witness of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, written by his apostles who were with him for all those years. The scripture is the word of God about his son, Jesus, and the events which his disciples saw and heard in the 33 years that they were with him. Let me say they were just as amazed, just as dumbfounded, just as taken back by the miracles and the teachings of Jesus as any in our day. But they were there. They were there. They saw these things firsthand. And we would do well to believe their testimony. Paul states in our text, that these three doctrines, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, are what he received and passed on. He did not invent these things. He says these things are of first importance namely, that Christ died, was buried, rose from the dead, just as the scriptures had foretold would happen. No other religion in the world presents with us with a Savior who meets these three works of redemption. Number one, a substitute who will stand in and pay the penalty of sin for all who believe. Secondly, one who truly is sinless, has to be sinless, died, was buried, succumbing to the penalty of sin, which is the wages of sin, his death. So he underwent the penalty. And number three, raised on the third day, no longer held bound by the grave, but victorious over it. This is why Peter, in explaining how the lame man was healed by he and John, said, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. And he said that to the religious authorities of the day. He goes on. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Now that is an exclusive statement. There's no other name that purports salvation. Not Allah, not Mohammed, not Hare Krishna, not Buddha, not Confucius, not Mother Mary, not Joseph Smith of the Mormons, not any prophet of the past or guru of the present. Not even the Jesus you think is still dead. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 10 and following. That's reading scripture for you. The Bible knows of only one Savior. And it is Jesus the Christ, God's anointed one and only Son. Now, I want you to consider these three doctrines, all documented in Scripture, and how they relate. Number one, Christ died for our sins. Many religious leaders have died throughout history. Confucius, Buddha, Muhammad, more recent days, Joseph Smith, Jim Jones, David Koresh. So there is nothing unusual about that, that people die and leaders die. Paul does not simply say Jesus died, but that he died for our sins according to the scriptures. This then is not just death as it comes to all men, nor is it a statement about martyrdom, a man dying for a cause. We've all read about these suicide bombers whose deaths are designated to take lives, not save lives. Jesus' death had benefits which accrued to those whom Jesus represents. Paul tells us he died for our sins. So the concept of a substitution is dominant here. Jesus dies for others. concept of redemption is also present he dies for our sins a payment is being made to God to placate his wrath upon us for our sin for God has said the soul that sins must die the wages of sin is death Well, who constitutes the hour, O-U-R, the hour for whom Christ died? Well, in context, it would be the Corinthians, wouldn't it? That's who Paul's writing to, plus Paul. But is that all? Did Christ just die for the Corinthians and the Apostle Paul? Certainly, there must be more, and there is. Paul talks about this as part of the gospel message that he preached everywhere. Verse 1, a gospel to be received and upon which people are to take their stand. Verse 1, a gospel that issues in people being saved if they will believe. Verse 2, so we see that Jesus did not just die for the population of Corinth. Plus Paul. But for all believers. Who receive and respond in faith. To the gospel message. This is not. Wholesale. Indiscriminate. Universal atonement here. As though all men are saved. Just because Jesus died. No. This is a redemption. Applicable to those only. Who receive it. And believe it and take their stand upon it. Some reading a text like this would say something like this Well, we can say that Jesus died for all men, but the benefits are only applied to those who believe. Well, brethren, that is not a biblically accurate description. Of atonement. The salvation of God is not accidental. It is on purpose, as is evident from specific prophecies which explain the recipients of Jesus' work. It's the difference between believing that Christ died simply to provide salvation. For people. And believing that Christ actually. Procured salvation for people. Well he provides it. If people want it. What does the scripture say about sinners? There's none righteous not one. They are declared as the enemies of Christ. So, are they going to want it? You got to think through these things. Hmm. Does an enemy want what he considers something the enemy can give? No. Paul tells us Christ died for our sins. He actually paid for sins, the sins of real people with real sins. There's no such thing as a, as blood spilt but unapplied. In other words, like a blood bank, blood bank just sitting out there, in the spiritual space, waiting to be tapped. Let me say if the if atonement were universal, then salvation would be universal. But the Bible only attributes salvation to those who repent and believe and to none else. What is more the Bible is clear that those for whom Christ died will be saved. There's no ifs about it. John 6 verse 37. These are the words of Jesus himself. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me. That I shall lose none of all that he has given me. Put the two verses together. All that the Father gives me, they're going to come to me. And of all that come to me, I'm going to lose none. Wow, I like this. This is wonderful. This is what the gospel's about. This is where the joy of the gospel comes in. Listen to the words of Jesus to the Jewish leaders who opposed him. here's what he said to them you're not my sheep because you do not believe in me is that what he said no that's not what he said that's how we read it you're not my sheep because you don't believe in me but that's not what he said what he says you do not believe because you're not my sheep ooh ooh, wait a minute you don't believe because you're not my sheep that's different he goes on my sheep listen to my voice I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. And no one can snatch them out of my hand. So here's the question. Which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Which comes first? Belief, then becoming a sheep, or becoming a sheep and then belief? Jesus explains that it is the latter. Our faith is part of being a sheep of Christ by his miracle of grace. It is to the sheep that Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. John 10 verse 15. None of this then is left to chance or to the fickle finger of fate. God the Father As a people, he gives his son to die for them. He gives these people to his son to save, to keep, to grant eternal life, and the promise of resurrection. Let me give you some scriptures on this. Isaiah 53, 4, that wonderful chapter in the book of Isaiah. Wow. He writes, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging we are healed. Okay. Who are the our, O U R, and the we being referenced here? Our, our, our. Five times it said. Verse 8. He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. To whom. The stroke was due. Does the phrase, my people, mean every last person in the world? Sorry to say, many preach that. Read on, verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, and he will bear their iniquities. Verse 12. He poured out his life unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors. Remember the thieves on the cross that died with Jesus that day. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So if the words of Scripture mean anything, Isaiah 53 clearly foretells that Jesus, as the suffering servant of Jehovah, would be sacrificed for those who would become the people of God by repentance and faith. And that is not universal atonement. That is particular redemption. Our, 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 But Isaiah 53 is prophecy, right? So, we might ask the question, what about fulfillment? Here's the words of Jesus. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many his words. Matthew 20, 28. Paul, writing to the church of Rome, said he, Jesus, was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised for our justification. The writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 9, verse 28, Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, shall appear the second time not to bear sin but to those who eagerly await him for salvation. Peter actually quotes Isaiah 53 and applies it to his readers. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds we are healed. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. In the book of Titus chapter 2, Paul writes looking for the appearance of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession all of these scriptures brethren testify that the death of Christ was to pay the debt of sin for specific people Not a small group, by the way. But for all who, in hearing the gospel, receive it and believe it and repent of their sin. And that's a large group. When we come to the Revelation, we can read about that. say, well, what's your point? My point is this. Atonement is not just sitting out there in spiritual cyberspace. Awaiting people to tap into it, if and when they will. No, Jesus had a face and a name and a unique identity in mind for every person for whom he died. So how do you know that? Well, Revelation 17 verse 8 tells us, that the names of those destined for salvation were written in the Lamb's book of life from the creation of the world. What? That means before time. Do you know that time is not eternal? That that is a created entity? But before there was creation... Our names, the names of those that would believe in God and trust Him, were written in His book. You know, you think about it, a name is a personal mark of identification that belongs only to you. If you were to make reservations for an exclusive restaurant, the first thing the maitre d' would ask you is, what is your name? Why would he ask that? Well, because you're not going to get a table unless one has been reserved for you. Your name identifies who you are. Well, my name is John Smith. Oh, well, there's thousands of John Smiths. How about a middle name that would kind of more or less zone in on who you are as one person? Well, my name is John Richard Smith of Lapeer. Oh, okay. Now it's specific. Now it's not guesswork anymore. God has a book. It's called the Book of Life that identifies by name every person for whom Christ died. And when the final tally is made in the Day of Judgment, not one person will be missing from the names written there. Say, yeah, no, I don't know. Is God that specific? The scripture says the very hairs of your head are numbered. That God has them numbered. We're not used to a deity that is so intricately involved in who and what we are. We bought into the lie of liberal theologians who have taught that God just made creation, got it going, turned everything loose, And now you can just go live the way you want to live and toodaloo. He's not interested anymore. Not true. Those for whom Christ died consist of all types of people, all races, all nationalities, both sexes. God calls His people from men and women, boys, girls, of every nationality. The redeemed include Black people and white people, males, females, noble, ignoble, educated, ignorant, backward people, civilized people, you name it, God shows no favoritism. He saves whom he wills, when he wills, and thankfully, he turns none away who call upon him. That's the gospel. And that's why it's called the gospel. It's good news. Which is what the word gospel means. Secondly, Christ was buried for us. Why would Paul mention burial? We don't like to think about this. Well, it serves two purposes. Number one, firstly, burial confirms the finality of death. We bury people whom we know to be devoid of life's breath. As long as people are still breathing and their flesh is still warm and alive, we don't bury them. Jesus had a tomb, but it was not the lost tomb of the filmmaker, Cameron, whose most notable film was Titanic. He should have stuck with that. Cameron bought into the pseudo-scientific archaeological opinion of Jewish-born Simka Jachovic, who claimed that the names inscribed on bone boxes called ossuaries, Jesus was one of the names he found. Jesus is a very common name, by the way, in the New Testament. It's the equivalent of the Old Testament name Joshua. Old Testament Joshua, New Testament Jesus, they both mean the same thing. They mean Savior. So, Jakovovic discovered this tomb, and in there, there were these boxes with Jesus' name written on them. Joseph and Mariana were other names. So he kind of put it all together in his mind says, Oh, I found the Holy Family. I found the Holy Family's tomb. In actuality, that tomb was discovered some 30 years prior to him and thoroughly researched by archaeologists and theologians alike. And all of those experts concluded the following. The family buried in that tomb consisted of ordinary middle-class Jewish family who had money that's how they could afford a tomb like that. The bones alleged to be those of the Jesus of the Bible evidence that the person had not died by crucifixion. Number three, the name Mariana is different from the name Mary, considerably so. And number four, the location of the tomb does not match the historical records of the Gospels. Number five, what is more, DNA testing is fruitless without a baseline With which to compare it, you need a hair or a piece of tissue known to belong to Jesus of Nazareth, and that's not available. So doing a DNA on the bones means nothing. So why then the hype? Well, it is nothing more than the ongoing saga of Hollywood trying to cash in on the fictitious Jesus. remember the movie The Last Temptation of Christ The Da Vinci Code if you want to read about the real burial of Jesus Isaiah 53 verse 9 says he was assigned a grave with the wicked yet it was with a rich man in his death, Isaiah fifty-three nine. The fulfillment is given in Matthew twenty-seven, verse fifty-seven and following. An evening approached. There came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, the governor, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, placed it in his own new tomb. That he had cut out of the rock. A new tomb that was never used before. Not containing other cadavers. And Jesus was buried. He was really dead. Another reason for Paul mentioning burial was to confirm resurrection. Resurrection is for dead people, right? Burial presupposes they were truly dead. All that men can do with the dead is bury them. It's our final farewell. But resurrection is a divine act alone which death cannot defy when God's power is unleashed. So he died. And the proof that he died is he was buried. And then thirdly, Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The prediction is in Psalm 16, verse 10. You will not abandon me to the grave. You won't do that. Nor will you let your Holy One see decay. I'm not going to decay. Paul applies this to Jesus when he preached at Antioch. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son. Today I have become your father The fact that God raised Him from the dead never to see decay is stated in these words, you will not let your Holy One see decay. Psalm 16 verse 10. Jesus' own prediction. These are His words. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, in the ground, in the cave. Matthew 12, verse 40. Verse 3 of our text says, He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Thus Christ fulfills prophecy for these three redemptive works necessary to salvation. Number one, his atoning death. Number two, his genuine burial. He was really dead. And number three, his glorious resurrection. And the scriptures converge on this one person in history whom Peter said is the only name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It's the only one that this has happened to. Now finally, as corroboration, we have eyewitness appearances. Verses 5 through 8. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures he was buried he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and he appeared to peter and then to ten then to the 12 the rest of the 12 and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time most of whom are still living though some have fallen asleep and then he appeared by james then to all the apostles and last of all he appeared to me these were eyewitness accounts of the resurrection in acts 13 verse 30 and following we read god raised him from the dead and for many days he had seen by the, he was seen by those who traveled with him from galilee to jerusalem they are now his witnesses John wrote that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at, which our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. We have the historical account on the evening of the first day of the week when the disciples were together, when the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you, and he showed them his hands, his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Acts or excuse me, John twenty, verse nineteen. See all this evidence? Now this wasn't done in some little corner. The resurrection of Jesus was not kept a private secret. Jesus appeared to many of his followers, 500 on one occasion, verse 6. And Acts 1, verse 3 tells us, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men. He gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days, and he spoke about the kingdom of God. So we have the very same men who had walked and talked with Jesus for three years and learned of him being taught an additional 40 days by the very one who had been crucified and buried by Jewish authorities. Now we must be prepared to believe these men and the preponderance of evidence for the living Christ or view all of them as a bunch of liars. How important is the resurrection? Well, Paul states in verse 17, here's how important it is. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then those who have fallen asleep or died in Christ are lost. That's how important it is wow what's he saying I can put it pretty bluntly dead saviors are no saviors put it down in your in your mind dead saviors are no saviors the work of Jesus for his people is not only the cross it is also the open and empty tomb. Remember how the Jewish uh, leaders mocked Jesus when he was on the cross? If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross and save us. Had he done that, we would all be lost. Because he was not dying for himself, he was dying for the sins of his people. Paul put it this way in Romans 6, verse 3 and following, Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him. I'm still reading scripture. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into his death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life if we have been united with him like this in his death we will certainly also be united with him in his resurrection if we died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him see it's all about Christ and his complete work Paul is describing the representative work of Jesus for his people He never acted on his own behalf. No, what he did was to represent his people before God as our substitute. His crucifixion meant the death of our old sinful selves. Paul words it that way. We know that our old self was crucified with him. When Jesus was buried, the believer shared that entrance into the grave. When Jesus arose, we share that new life by faith. Salvation is not complete apart from resurrection. It isn't. But with resurrection comes the power of a new life and the promise of eternal life. And that is why we believers say something like this to our family members we say, I say something like this because we each have our own wording, how we put this. But we might say, the old me is gone. I've said that to family members. Hey, the old me is gone. Or, I've changed inside. Or, that's not me anymore. And what we are conveying is that God has made us new from the inside out through Christ's resurrection power. Our thoughts, our speech, our actions, while not sinless, no, nevertheless they evidence a desire an effort to please God by being holy and righteous as God enables us. We're not the same old, sin-loving, wicked persons that we once were resurrection power has come to us I've had to say that to relatives I remember when you were I remember when you said I remember when you did and I have to say you're right but that's not me anymore That's what salvation's about. It's changing us from a sinful, God-hating creature to one that loves and obeys His Word. Has this life come to you? The gospel invitation is this. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it's with your mouth that you confess and are saved. As the scripture says, anyone who trusts in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all, and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, verse 9 and May God give you His grace today. If you don't know Him, you can know Him by calling upon Him and asking Him to show you the truth. I've often said this to people. Don't take my word for it. Read the scriptures yourself. Start, you know, re- read Mark's Gospel. That's simpler to read than some of the other Gospels. Read Mark's Gospel and ask the Lord to enlighten you as to who Jesus is and how you can come to know God through him. Honest inquiries. God doesn't. Be be negative towards that. We all have to start somewhere. And God's grace. Is sufficient to bring us the truth. And to help us sort out the lies. From the truth. Our father we thank you for your truth. And ask you for your, your enablement. Please, Lord, grant us these things we ask for your glory and our good. It would be to our good to come to know the great creator and savior of the universe. There's only one savior. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he is God's son. And so he represents the creator as well. All things were created by him and for him, the scripture says. So he's right there working with the Father. And our names, the names of the, lo- of the saved, are written in the Lamb's book of life before the creation of the world. We're not an afterthought with God. We're an on-purpose thought. And I pray that that would mean something to us. To the praise and glory of Jesus, we ask these things with thanksgiving. Amen. From the hymnal, number 224, 224 in the hymnal. Hope this is true of you, Jesus lives, and so shall I.
0: Two two four in the brown hymnal. Two two four in the brown. When you find it, will you stand with me? <laughs>
4: close in prayer our father we thank you for the reality of salvation that was up to God and that you sought us you even wrote our name in your book before the creation of the world so we're not an afterthought and we praise you for that but still in time and space we who have been ordained to be your people must come to you in faith. We have to repent of our sin. We have to ask. We have to seek forgiveness. And I pray that you will grant us that capability to the praise and glory of what you want finally to accomplish in our lives. Help the wayward here today, this driving the struggling can't piece it all together but that's okay we all began there and I pray Lord that you will grant knowledge and understanding faith and repentance to the praise and glory of Jesus to the salvation of the lost and to the encouragement of believers in Christ's name we thank you amen there is a luncheon to follow downstairs if you can stay it doesn't matter if you brought any food or didn't bring any food. I'm sure we're going to have enough. Right, Phil, do you want to say anything? Let's eat. <laughs> okay. we got plenty.